The last time the Browns started 2-0, Jose Mesa was an Indians starting pitcher. The Browns didn't win last night. Mesa didn't win that start either. But wasn't this a fun crossover event? You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. Welcome to the Selby is Godcast. I'm TJ, that's Zach. My favorite thing to do to you is to drop something on you that you didn't know was coming. So can you tell me what do you think was the Indians starting lineup on the day? The Browns started 2-0 back in 1993. That would have been September 13th, 1993. What can you remember about the 1993 Cleveland Indians? Okay. So I know Manny Ramirez was in there. Maybe. You knew incorrectly. No, sorry. Okay, well, he debuted two weeks earlier. He was not in the lineup this day. All right, Jim Tomey? Jim Tomey is in this lineup, playing third base, batting fifth. Carlos Baerga, unless that was when Baerga was hurt for the last week or so. Carlos Baerga is hitting third, playing second base. The old familiar. So that was, that was the year he was desperate to get to 200 hits, and he was stuck on 199, and he got injured like the last week or so of the season and he was like in the hospital I maybe I don't want to say I don't want to guess what he had it was like a leg injury um and he like ran out of the hospital onto the field to get an infield hit to get to 200 and then went back to the hospital good grief <laughs> uh Albert Bell Albert Bell's in there cleaning up left field got it so you got three four five Kenny Lofton. No Kenny Lofton on this day. Hmm. But what do you do when your center fielder doesn't start, but he's a typical leadoff hitter? What do you do in that spot? You put... Did they have Wayne Kirby? Wayne Kirby starting in center field, leading off on this day. Um, One, three, four, five you have. I need a shortstop. Come on, the shortstop always hits second. And it's 1993, so what does that tell you about who's playing shortstop? I thought was I thought was, uh, was that Fiskell's first year or was 94 his 94. first year? 94. Yeah, 93 he won the gold glove with Seattle. So Felix Fermin. Felix Fermin. And you got to put that guy hitting second with his 623 OPS. <laughs> you can move Just the runners around. Just come out and say that you hate Mike Hargrove. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One, two, three, four, five. That leaves first base DH right field catcher. Catcher hitting ninth. Sandy Almar. Sandy Almar. Okay, you got that. First base DH right field. Candy Maldonado in there Candy somewhere? Maldonado. With his 615 OPS in this season. Although, when he came over to Cleveland, was good after that. This was his second stint with Cleveland. Maldonado hitting eighth in right field. First Paul base Paul Sorrento? DH. First base, Paul Sorrento. Yes. Hitting behind Jim Tomey. Hitting seventh at DH was... 
this isn't a name that you will recognize. It's not like some weird entry here. Ah, uh, I just had a thought. Ah, oh, slipped my mind. Mark Lewis? I don't know. No. You mentioned the man that he was traded with for Vizquel. Reggie Jefferson? Reggie Jefferson. That's your your final answer. So that lineup on this day, and yes, this is how we're starting the show. <laughs> hey, thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> oh, and coming up, we'll talk about the Nick Chubb injury and what the Browns are going to do at running back. Kirby Fermin Bayerga, Bell Tommy Sorrento, Jefferson Maldonado Alomar starting on the mound the man who was saddled with his 11th loss of the season and his 486 ERA little do we know as we witnessed him give up nine hits nine runs and three innings that Jose Mesa would soon become one of the league's most dominant closing pitchers but it's Jose Mesa followed by Bob Malacki Tom Kramer Jerry Depoto finished that one off how about that for a blast from the past? You guys complain that we don't do random Cleveland player of the days anymore. There you go. When do you think, do you think there were any signs during Jerry DePoto's playing career that if he were to work in a front office, he would just be desperate <laughs> to make a trade every 10 minutes? Yes. I absolutely bet that he would have, he would start the day, it would be like that op- episode of The Office where you start with a paperclip and you trade your way up to, so he would start with a piece of bubble Magic yum. Magic beans. <laughs> bubble yum, then trade his way to a bit of honey, and then trade his way to, yes. So by the end of the day, he has, he's got a full-size, king-size Hershey bar, and he started with one nerd, like one little nerd. Somehow that worked. Yes, there were signs, if you paid attention. Yeah, I... I remember reaching out to him one spring to talk to him for a story. <laughs> and he said, the only time I'll be able to talk this spring is on this date at this time for 30 minutes. It was like he somehow had this 30-minute period picked out over a span of six weeks. And I, I went along. I said, you know, that, I'll take it because I just assumed he was going to be busy making trades the other Five weeks, six days, 23 hours, and 30 minutes. I'll blame you for starting the show this way, because we could have had a happy beginning to the week, having witnessed the Guardians sweep the Texas Rangers, who are a good team. And the Rangers are fighting for their playoff lives and for the Guardians to sweep them. That's impressive, regardless of the fact that the Guardians' playoff chances are basically dead. But then you had to travel, and Beyonce had to have a concert, yeah, it's not had... my fault. That's Queen Bees. <laughs> and they had to screw it all up so that our normal Monday show was pushed back to a Tuesday. And instead, now we get to talk about another bullpen blow up and everyone's paying attention to Nick Chubb and his injury and not really caring what we're discussing here. This is all on you and maybe a little bit on Beyonce. So don't blame me. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, no one seemed to know why the game wasn't changed back to a night game. I, I actually kind of liked it. I mean, it worked out well. I got to watch the Browns with Paul Hoynes, which is always exciting. Oh, what was and it's take? always exciting. It, he, the look on his face, because he, he didn't see the Chubb injury. So first of all, this is 
no one cares about this except Jordan Bastion, but Hoynes and I ending up at the same restaurant bar to watch the Browns without communicating with each other is just classic. But he walked over to the restaurant, I think during the Chubb injury. So he hadn't seen the replay. So I showed him the replay since they weren't showing it on Ugh. broadcast. You watched that? You actively sought that out? Well, he, I, he wanted to see it. And I was nice enough to show it to him before he ate his salmon. <laughs> God, what kind of friend are you? But it reminded me of, like, it almost looked like a an injury you would see at home plate. Someone sliding into a catcher, kind of yeah. like the Carlos Santana one, remember, 2010 oh. maybe? Yeah, watching that one, it looked, I, I thought maybe his career was over. Based mm -hmm. on the way that that looked. I mean, it was gruesome. I think it was Ryan Kalish, maybe, sliding into home plate at Fenway Park. Um, yeah, that was, that's, unlike anybody but Chubb. Has anyone ever had a bad thing to say about that guy? Never. And he's on his way to a Hall of Fame career here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's rough. And I'm certainly thinking of all the Browns fans waking up today wishing that that was the worst nightmare, but no reality. It reminded me also of, in a similar way that, remember the the energy being sapped and drained from the ballpark when Edwin Encarnacion trying to get back to second base and his shoe exploded? Mm. But the way that it looked in the replay, I thought his foot was in one place and his the rest of his leg was in another. It, was, it looked so bad. And yet somehow he came back to play later in that series. You never would have thought that in the moment. It really, I mean, think about where that game was going, where it ultimately went in game two, where you had the crazy comeback and the grand slam. In the moment, it reminded me how just the energy in the ballpark was gone and everyone was just like, oh my God, I can't believe what I just witnessed when you saw that happen with Encarnacion. And so it was sort of similar with what happened to the Browns, where just everybody was, it, it just took a minute for everyone to, to fully realize and process what they saw. On top of the fact that everybody loves Nick Chubb and you saw all the outreach on social media, you know, ex-teammates and everyone reaching out and saying how much they're thinking of this guy. God, that was gruesome last night. Yeah, there's also something when, when it happens on a nationally televised game and not, I mean, I know every NFL game is nationally televised, but a spectacle that you know everyone's watching and everyone's reacting in real time and in unison. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunately that's like I can't really get that image out of my head. Um, I haven't watched it. I refuse to watch it. Yeah, I don't know. I like I physically like squirmed when it ha happened, and I just that's that stinks. And it's crazy too how and this is in any sport. So unpredictable and like the trajectory of a career can change in an instant. You know, I think back to the other one it reminded me of was Josh Naylor, who was it that was it was different. Naylor did like a helicopter propeller move. Um, but I remember hearing him yell when the trainers were attending to him. I remember that ballpark got silent so fast in Minnesota. And you, you know, you spend the rest of that day wondering, I don't know if this guy's ever going to play again. 
And if he is, it's going to be a long rehab. And it's crazy to think now, you know, he was recovered by the next season. Um, I feel like sometimes it takes guys years. And like, how many times have you thought about Naylor's injury this year? Guy's been one of the best hitters in the yeah. American League. And it's truthfully, the only time I've thought about it is the fact that I feel like he he looks more athletic. He's certainly able to steal more bases. He's he's a much better, more agile player at first base. So I think to myself, he's fully over the injury. He he was able to had a normal off season to enable him, I think, to have this sort of complete season for him. And it was unfortunate when he he goes down with another injury. And how mm-hmm. how good is it to see? <laughs> we're just gonna take this this the stream of consciousness. How fortunate to see him come back and now have some success because it could have been easy to to look at the success he had pre-injury and think he's not like that that was some sort of fluke and it was all just came together but for him to come back post-injury and just still look like a dominant offensive force it puts me at such ease it has to put him at such ease in the organization to just reinforce the fact that this is absolutely a dude this is a mainstay I'm not worried one second about Naylor. You know, we all thought maybe that next step was in there, but God, he had to show it this year, and he sure did. And just coming back and doing this at the end of the season, it won't ultimately matter when it comes to the standings, but really it it does a lot just to calm me down to feel like this is, no, this is a guy. This is a guy you like. His numbers are so good that I think they're (laughs) fluke-proof. I mean, if you look careful coming from you. (laughs) <laughs> if you look at the splits, which, by the way, uh, with the Meisel jinx has reached new heights. Some I can't talk about here, but oh my gosh. And then I'm really testing fate with another story we've been holding oh, for no. the perfect time. And oh, no. Anyway, putting that out into the universe is dangerous. Um, you know, with, with if you look at Naylor's splits in various situations or facing pitchers different times in a game or home versus road day versus night like literally doesn't matter he's sensational high leverage he's been awesome against lefties his ops is almost as good as it is against righties and remember he started the season 0 for 17 i think against lefties and we were all saying oh well this guy's a platoon player You know, I I believed in the profile. As he was coming up through the minors, you looked at the strikeout rate, the walk rate. You knew there was power in there just by his frame, his strength. Um, So he showed some signs before the injury that, okay, this was a guy who can make contact. He does chase a lot. You know, what is this going to look like? Like, you see there's something in there. But you're right. He needed to take that next step, and the step was going to be hitting the ball with authority, hitting for power, but but also just, you know, we've seen guys on this team who don't strike out, but they also don't get enough hits, right? And they certainly don't get enough hits for extra bases. So how could he use, how could he leverage his power, strength, to create this, whatever this package was going to look like, we're seeing it now. You know, this is a guy who's hitting over 300. This is a guy who's got a slugging percentage over 500. This is a guy who, 
you know, I, I think he's got 17 home runs and he's missed a bunch of games, but like there's certainly 25, 30 home run power in there. He's a guy who's stolen nine bases, which is not nothing. Um, so you are seeing like he has taken that next step and we're seeing what, you know, you're finally getting that payoff. Um, and it's, it's just, it's not like it's different than Andre Jimenez because Andre Jimenez never quite, he didn't have the same profile, didn't have the same skill set. Like you looked at Andre Jimenez last year and it's like, oh my God, this guy never slumped, but like, okay, his on-base percentage is inflated by being hit by a pitch every five minutes. And he's not like a huge power guy. And, you know, he doesn't make a ton of hard contact. You wondered year to year what that would look like. I think we're seeing. But with Naylor, like, it should be in there where this guy can do damage. And you can count on him to do damage again next year. And he's got two more years of team control. So... Do you talk extension with him in the spring? Do you say, hey, want to play with your brother for even longer? You know, here's some security. But it's it's really one of the big bright spots in this season. I've been encouraged that the increased power and some of the authority that he's added in his hitting profile hasn't come at the sacrifice of becoming a different sort of hitter. That, that hasn't happened. Now, beyond the age of 30, do I can start to be concerned about a guy that that swings outside the strike zone as much as he does? Sure. But that's several years from now. And I think if you're talking extension with him, I'd be too I'd be a little nervous to go beyond maybe four, you know, two additional years beyond the years of control. Because I think as that profile ages, I I have a little bit of concern about how that works. But th- definitely through the age of 30, I feel really good about this guy being a a central piece for your team. And if you can work something out, I, I think we'd all would be absolutely all for that. I also love that he's still, he's never, he's never going to showcase the, the walk totals that he had in the minor leagues. Remember when he first came over, we said, where was this really patient guy? I think a lot of that was just, he's good at, just, at spitting on the stuff that he has no business swinging at. But his hit profile is so good and he's had so much success I don't blame him for wanting to expand occasionally because he sees a pitch that's up and out of the zone, but he still says, I can do damage on that. And you know what? He's been right. And so I, when a guy is going, what I really like, when a guy is going well, sometimes I don't mind if you're expanding your zone, especially if you have the, an elite hit tool like I think he does, because you're just seeing it great. And if you think you can do damage on that ball and you have been, then sure, expand. But I also like seeing a guy that can maybe bring it in a little bit. If he's not seeing the ball as great, they can still take the occasional walk. He's in the perfect spot for me because he's got that elite hit tool uh, as far as just putting bat to ball and hitting it well. And so he's not someone like Jimenez that's only going to draw a walk, you know, Will Brennan that's only going to draw a walk 3% of the time. He's probably closer to like 6 7% range. But take the walks when it's there. Be patient enough that you're not just going to get yourself out. He's in that perfect territory, right? I think like this is his perfect ideal, I want to say fully realized version because that, that feels silly to just slap that label on somebody when he has taken a step forward like he has this year. But really, I feel like he's he's pretty close to his optimized, fully formed, just completely aggressive self. And, and it's perfect for him and, and perfect for his skill set. Isn't it just as simple as 
you trust him? Yes. Yeah. Like with Oscar Gonzalez, someone like that, I, I don't know that I believe in you to make the right swing decisions and to know what you can do damage on. And what, I mean, that's been the whole crux of his lost season. And with Naylor, it's you're going to chase, but I trust that you know when to chase. And it's worked. I, I think there's something to a middle of the order hitter at times maybe does need to expand. Maybe that makes him a perfect middle of the order bat. Remember this this conversation we would have endlessly about Carlos Santana, and he was really miscast as this big slogging, slugging middle of the order cleanup hitter because he took he took the walks and people would get so frustrated. And to some level, I get it because the guy that was hitting fifth or sixth, you just didn't have a lot of faith that they were going to drive in the run after he took first. Naylor, sometimes the the quote unquote run producer sort of hitter means that you need a guy that expands because if a ball is a little bit off the plate but he can elevate it with that guy on third base, he creates the run instead of maybe taking the walk and the next guy doesn't bring him home. Now, that's not fully on him, and it's the same way it wasn't fully on Carlos Santana, but it does come to, I think when you're you're optimizing a lineup and putting guys whose skill sets work in certain spots, yeah, it's easy to just say, just put your best hitters in certain situations or certain spots in the lineup and everything's fine, and most of the time that is fine. But there is something to, to guys that just do it a little bit different throughout the lineup. And I think when you realize where those guys slot in, that's when you get like that the best version of a lineup. Unfortunately, they just haven't had enough behind him to make this work as a, a fully functional lineup that can put up a lot of runs. I mean, he must be a headache for pitchers. Yes. Yeah. That that's that's the main thing. And and I mean, we can have some fun with arbitrary endpoints here for a second. Because remember, he was he was ranked as the most unlucky hitter, according to Baseball Savant, for the first six weeks of the season. I remember writing about it, I think at Yankee Stadium in early May. And um, you know, the big thing was just stick with it, you're fine. And it's easy to be skeptical and it's easy to have doubts whether you're us or you're him because he didn't have the track record yet. We'd seen glimpses of it, but we hadn't seen this. Well, the last four months, 357, 394, 579. <laughs> I mean, that's that's through the roof production, and it's a large enough sample size to make me believe they've got their number three hitter for at least the next two years, and Maybe more. Um, and the big thing, too, I mean, for for a guy who's got power, I mean, he's got 24 doubles in that span. That's 320 plate appearances. 24 doubles, that's that's a lot. 14 home runs, only 39 strikeouts. So this is a guy who has, you said it, like he has found the perfect way to blend contact and power and do it in a way where it's not all of one or all of the other, which it seems like 90% of this team's position players fall in those two categories. Could he sacrifice a little bit of batting average to maybe hit a few more home runs? Probably. And maybe that happens as his career unfolds. You see that happen with younger players hit for a higher average, and then they realize, I, well, I want to start selling out for more power. It happened in Jim Tomey's career. I remember that. So I think he, he can evolve and become a different hitter as these years go on. But I am completely happy. He doesn't need to be a guy that hits 35 bombs. 
even though I think if he tried to do that, he he maybe could exclusively just be a power hitter. I'm cool with a guy that if he's fully healthy, he's hitting in the 20s and he's posting a 30, 35% above league average offensive rate. I am so happy with that. And on top of the fact that in the splits, I'm not sure like he's fully answered whether or not he's going to be great against lefties for the rest of his career. It gets really noisy. But as long as he's just adequate against the lefties and just feasting on these righties, such a complete player, such a great player to have. And we give this organization so much grief and it's deserved for the the player development, the position player development shortcomings. I think it's important that we recognize here's one that is working because, man, when was the last time this team had a first baseman that they developed that wasn't a platoon player that offered some power that could hit in the middle of the order? I mean, Santana, but first mm, base yeah, was yeah. his third position. Yeah. And you said they developed and he had come over here almost a fully finished version of himself. I mean, Naylor was similar. I'm, and Santana is an answer here. I'm just saying it, it has. There aren't many. I mean, yeah, Ryan Garko. Garko. There you right. go. Um, ben Broussard, who came over here but via trade. But he was wasn't he a platoon guy? Like I don't yeah. think he, he didn't play against. No, that's the he point. Had like Jose Hernandez <laughs> platooning with him. <laughs> yeah, uh, Perez, and then you trade both of them to Seattle. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yeah, I, you know, he's part of the the reason why you feel optimistic about where this offense can be. Th- through much of this season, as you and I were talking about privately, it would be easy to be pessimistic because they still feel so far away offensively and just consistently they don't have enough middle-of-the-order thump. They've got some solid guys, and I think, like, I'm, I'm not really worried long-term about Jimenez. I still think he's a really, really good player. But somebody, I think even on Fangrass had pointed out, Jose's going to be another year older next year, so you can't just count on him to consistently be this MVP caliber player, even if he's a really good player. And I think he will continue to be a really good player. But this year has shown us, maybe the days of the elite of the elite Jose, maybe that's beyond us, and he's still fine, but not great. So why do you feel optimistic about 24? Why do you think anything gets better from here? And it's a conversation I've been having privately with myself, but I'm curious... Why do you, the, the levels of optimism that you feel, where does that stem from? Where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts, it has to start with the pitching staff. More so, it's, it's curiosity about the three rookies. What happens when you take off the training wheels? Tanner Bybee was unbelievably consistent this year. Twice in 25 starts did he allow more than three earned runs. And both of those came within his first nine. So you think about the last three months of his rookie season, he was automatic. But he also knew in order for him to pitch deep into a game, he was going to have to be unbelievably 
efficient. It's tough to do. He's a rookie. Started the year at AAA. Was in college two years ago. I mean, this is a super quick ascent. But what happens next year when you say, go through 180 innings? Like, no guardrails here. What happens with Gavin Williams when you tell him, go ahead, you're starting game three of the season and we hope you also start game three of a postseason series. Like it's like not knowing because these guys have known, you know, when they're at 85 pitches and there's two outs and Bybee's sitting there thinking, I got to get this guy out in two pitches if I want to come back for the six. Like all that stuff is there, whether it directly or indirectly affects you. It's just, it's on your conscience. So what happens when none of that exists, right? And I'm not saying it's all going to be a breeze. Hitters are going to adjust. You know, there aren't going to be surprises anymore. But I'm just, I'm fascinated to watch. You know, I I think they will have better injury luck with the rotation because I don't see how it could be worse, right? Get a full season of McKenzie. Who knows what they'll do with Bieber, but I feel like it's a win-win. You either have Bieber and then all of a sudden... A Bieber, McKenzie, Bybee, Williams, yes. Allen rotation looks, what, top five in the league? Well, I think that's an important distinction to make. At times you say, well, if so-and-so comes back and this person comes back, then you'll be fine. That's not the conversation for the Guardians. They're already fine. They're already mm-hmm. fine. The thing is, it's not like you're counting. In some ways, you you are counting on them to return, but it's not like... Everything that you have hopes in in 2024 is tied to McKenzie and maybe Bieber coming back. It's it's a different conversation because you already feel great about the group. You just think, how much better could it be if you have a healthy McKenzie and maybe Bieber and Quantrill is whatever he was dealing with this year. He certainly looked a lot better since he's come back, and that makes me feel better about him remaining as a great depth, if not more, piece for mm-hmm. this rotation. So that's the distinction here. It's not... Well, if they only had these guys. No, to me, it's if they do have these guys, you're take, you're talking about a good group becoming a super elite group. Correct. Or you trade Bieber and maybe you get something useful on the position player side. Um, so I, I and, and again, then they have de- like Joey Cantillo. You're going to see him at some point next season. Um, so I, I, I feel confident in the starting pitching Here's the thing about the bullpen. It can't be worse. <laughs> right? <laughs> I believe Classe and Stefan have combined for 19 blown saves. We talked about Classe's weird season where that ranks in team and league history. The first reliever with 11 blown saves in 14 years. And at the same time, he leads the league in saves. And his ERA is... Not something you would pull your hair out over. And, you know, it, it seems like a lot of little things that have added up to just a strange, frustrating season, right? Maybe Stefan's not an eighth inning guy. Maybe you have that in house. Maybe you have to go get that. You have candidates. That's just, that's bullpens, they fluctuate year to yeah. year. I, I just, I. You'll get there. I don't see how you, I mean, you need to make some changes and seek some upgrades but like i don't see how you can be as 
incredibly poor timed with all your meltdowns <laughs> as you were this season. You'll get there. You'll figure it out. So I, I just I think the pitching staff is in a good spot. That's kind of my bottom line here. Um, I don't know. Maybe Daniel Espino comes back at some point late next season and factors into this. Um, on the position player side, the biggest thing to me and the reason why I would lean toward cautiously optimistic entering 2024 is the best way to ensure necessary changes are made is to fail. And I don't know how the front office can look at this season and think, well, just run it back. And we'll go to Noel and Valera and Brito and it'll be fine. I don't see how you can, I mean, I said this a year ago, I don't see how you can Look at another year of Miles Straw's offensive production or lack thereof and be like, all right, 600 more plate appearances for Miles Straw in 2024. No, I think I think they know what needs to happen. I think they have internal options that until proven otherwise, like Manzardo seems like a really nice piece. Um not the year George Valera wanted to have or needed to have, but as long as you're not just relying on him to be an everyday stud next year and you can let him force the issue, like they have some internal options that can help. I like what I've seen from Gabriel Arias lately. If he doesn't work out next season, you have Brito, you have Rocchio, you have Freeman, you have Tana. Maybe you won't have all of them because you'll make a trade, but I just think there are solutions. And I think there are the resources to go get the solutions you need to get externally. So I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know who the manager is going to be, but I think that they're in a spot where it's easy to build off of and it's easy to correct certain things. Or at least maybe it's not easy, but they're positioned to do so. And think of this. I mean, this has been the season from hell, right? I mean, they've lost their the two horses who carried them, who dominated the Rays in that wild card series, um, who carried them down the stretch last season, who were their number one and two starters this year, barely pitched. The bullpen has just blown up at the worst times over and over and over again. The game on Monday in Kansas City, how many times have we seen that game this season? 30? Like, it's just, it's not a surprise anymore. So, I just, I think regression and opportunity play into their hands and I, I think they're in a good position to do what they need to do to go win a division title next year now I don't know what the twins are going to look like I don't think they're I, mean, I don't know what the Tigers are going to look like but I just think they're in a better I think they're in a good spot to be better next season and I think on September 19th that's all you can really hope for you get a full season of Bo Naylor production at catcher as opposed to what you were getting earlier this year. Maybe, mm -hmm. as you were saying, training wheels off with the pitchers, maybe training wheels off with Naylor as well. 
to let him stay in the lineup a little bit more consistently as opposed to not wanting to overload a rookie in his first extended run in the big leagues. Their offense is in this weird spot where it feels like they're so far away. However, if they were to add one legitimate, another legitimate middle-of-the-order bat to go stick in right field, I would feel like so many issues could be rectified internally from there. They have to do that. They absolutely do. We're going down this path where I said a couple of weeks ago, I'm really concerned about Will Brennan is going to go on this nice stretch and they're just going to hand him right field going into next year. And that really, it frightens me because you can't do that. If Will Brennan's going to take 65% of your center field plate appearances next year, I I like that profile a little bit more coming out of my center fielder because you went and acquired somebody that can be your legitimate everyday hitting fifth, fourth, wherever, right fielder. Now, it's easy for us to say that here. Like, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And that's the one thing that that makes me pause when I say, well, it's just an easy fix. Go get that. Well, who's giving that up? Who's giving up the, the corner outfield bat? Maybe it has to come through a Bieber trade. And maybe you go about the route of getting someone that's only going to be here for a year or two to, put, mm, to go play corner Shohei outfield. Shohei Otani pillow contract, anybody? <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. I'm going to be your DH. It It doesn't. It's odd because I feel like they're so far away, yet if I really examine it, they're not too far away. Stephen Kwan, I think he's showing us what he is. Solid piece. Maybe not a great hitter, but I think as the years go on, he's going to have some years where he's going to hit really well. He's going to have some years that maybe he's babbipped to death. But I'm fine with him being in left field considering not only is he a solid average-ish hitter, but he's also the best defensive left fielder in the sport probably right now. I mean, so if, that's a tremendous if value. This season, if this season is his offensive low point and last season is his offensive high point, like wouldn't you sign up for yeah. something in between those yeah. two if you every want to, year? Yeah, you want to fluctuate between that for the next three, four, five years, cool. To go along with the value that he brings defensively, fine. Center field problem area. But again, if you go out and get a right fielder and you push some of these guys that have played right field into center field and you're looking at more of a Brennan... Laureano platoon there in center fielder. That can work. It's maybe not my ideal situation, but it certainly works a lot better than what we saw from the majority of the season out of center field. Right field, I don't know what they're going to do, but it does feel like you just, if you do fix that one spot, then first base, I like that. God, Naylor's fine. Jimenez, sort of the same conversation as as Quan, where if, if last year was his best and this year is kind of his floor, Still a valuable piece. Shortstop, we'll see. But Arias has done enough to me that I'm going. I'm comfortable handing him that spot going into next year, and then let let it all play out. They'll dictate what happens beyond that. And of course, you're you're set at third base and at catcher. For once, I'm not concerned about that. I really like Bo Naylor, and I really like the strides that he's made. They know they need offense, and we could we could have this semantics battle between is it more offense or is it more power or is it more runs? And this was just this ridiculous conversation because Chris Antonetti will never just nail down one absolute and say, yes, we need power because that means he could go get a guy that has a 680 OPS but might hit 30 home runs, and that's the only thing he does. Antonetti's not going to see that as an upgrade. He's going to only be thinking about run creation, and he's never going to say, we only need power because he doesn't want to be nailed down to just one 
one outlet here, one one avenue that he's going to explore. Sorry, no Luis Arise for us. We're good. We just need guys who hit dingers. <laughs> right. And that's why we, we caution everybody all the time. Just be careful just listening to what somebody says. I will say, I I mean, I th- we know what we're talking about here. I mean, they they need everything. They, they do need just good hitters. But it is interesting. I, I was looking up the, obviously they rank last in the league in home runs. I was looking up the bottom five because the bottom five teams all stink. It's like the Guardians, the A's, the Nationals, the Royals, and maybe the Tigers are the bottom five this year. Maybe the Rockies are in there. And last year, none of the bottom five teams made the playoffs except the Guardians. And the year before, the bottom five teams in home runs averaged 99 losses. So you can see, like, power is valuable. Yeah, but, but I think that's a byproduct of bringing in better hitters. Of course, of course. I'm just, it, it was just interesting to me that the evidence was so glaring. Um, and I also think, I mean, Bo Naylor could hit 25 home runs next year. I wouldn't be shocked. So, like, there are internal ways to address the power issue. I mean, getting more George Valera and less Miles Straw in the outfield would probably add some power, you'd hope. Um, so, yeah, I, but also, like, they need to go out and make additions, and you're right. It's just, go get good hitters. Go get someone who can hit fourth. Go get someone who can hit fifth. And go from there. I think the rest the rest around that will settle into its place if you're able to do that. I mean, go. Don't just say, well, we only need one then. If you can get more than that, go, go get more than that. I'm not saying be be okay and cool with that but it does feel like you're able to operate from more of an area of strength with the guys you already have internally if you just it's what josh bell should have been when he was here there was just he wasn't good enough while he was here and then that pleasant stretch didn't come until he left but that is sort of what you're going about here getting someone that it's going to make everyone else filter into spots where they fit better instead of being miscast as your your everyday right fielder like Brennan has been this year we could just go down the list of of guys that are being asked to do things that they shouldn't be doing like you shouldn't be hitting those guys fifth and sixth in your lineup but do you do you agree like we've spent so much time this season dwelling on who hasn't performed managerial decisions that backfired front office decisions that failed are you with me here in that like it's it's easy for me to paint a scenario that this team is good next year. And I think that's hard to like wrap your head around during the season as it's happening and you know the team's falling short of expectations and falling out of a race. But it's also I was thinking back to like this time in 2021. I didn't see the vision. You know, we certainly didn't know about Jose Ramirez's future but you didn't really have the building blocks in place, it seemed like, to flip that switch the next season. And, you know, thinking back to other years where the year fell short of expectations and at the end of the year, I, you know, at, at the end of 2012, I don't think people were saying, well, you know, just make a couple tweaks and get a new manager and they'll be in that wild card game in 2013. Like, I, no, we spent... The summer of 2012, watching Thomas Neal and Vinny Rotino, and <laughs> um, so oh, I wish we could have had episodes about that. I do feel like this is different. 
and maybe it's because the team is so young and they're gaining experience. And obviously, I mean, it helps when your rotation is set. But I don't know. Am I just being too optimistic for once? Yeah, it's kind of weird. I'm not. I'm not used to it. I'm kind of frightened by it. I think what you're getting at here is the the starting pitching raises your floor significantly. If you have pitching like we think they can have next year, it's really hard to be bad with that. Now, doesn't mean you're going to be good, but it just means that the worst you can be, provided you're not talking about crippling injuries again, it just doesn't feel like you're going to be feasting in the 62-win club here. You are going to be much closer to where maybe even where they should be this year. If you look at their expected win-loss record, you look at their their one-run game records, it would suggest they're probably a little bit closer to a 500 team, a little bit below that. I think their different their their uh, their win diff is negative 17. Last time I checked it. Now, how much of that happened when David Fry was on the mound? No, I'm kidding. I mean, he wasn't even their worst pitcher that day. <laughs> I'll get to him. So they're probably a little bit closer to being a 500 team if you factor in just some of the flukiness in the bullpen and and just the way baseball works. That pitching raises your floor, and it, it, it gives you such a great starting point so that the offense doesn't have to come far for this to be a legitimately much better team, a more complete team. And yeah, Bybee may be at the center of that because as I was examining it, he's done for the season. And of course, that's that's unfortunate because you would like to see him just continue his season strong. But now that he's done, we can look at the season that he had. And initially, I I was thinking, it's it's a great rookie season, of course. Where does it rank among rookie Indian slash Guardians starting pitchers? And so I I started to think about who was great in their rookie season. And I realized this is probably one of the best rookie seasons this organization has ever had. You could talk about CeCe, how good he was in his rookie season. A lot of that probably because you just looked at the win total and he won 17 games and everyone assumed he was great. He had his his struggles that year. Bybee, he had brief stretches where he kind of was, was fighting himself a little bit. This was a hell of a rookie season. Where do you think? Can you think of a a more impressive rookie season than the one that Bybee had? <laughs> Not really, because most of them took place like <laughs> before airplanes were invented. <laughs> right, I love that. You know, you're going to find Addy Joss in there. <laughs> of course, Herb Score had a great rookie season back in 1955. Do you think, like when Jim Bagby threw 272 innings? as a rookie in 1916. Do you think they were like pulling back on him toward the end of that year? And they're like, well, we can't let him get to 300, but next year he can. <laughs> oh, come on, Skip. I got another 34 innings in me. <laughs> Bagby's like, oh, I got to get this guy out in two pitches because they're not going to let me come back out for the 11th inning when I'm at sitting here at 165. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking modern... You know, it's so like, how, how we can't compare this to, yeah, Addy Joss, who had a 277 ERA, and or Irvine Gregg 
1911, a 180 ERA in 244 innings. Like, I, what am I supposed to do with that? But if we look at the last 65 years, it's Bybee and it's Charles Nagy and then probably Bieber and Sabathia after that. Does that sound about right? Like, and, and but I don't. It might just be Bybee. I mean, honestly, like the big thing for Nagy was he threw 211 innings. His ERA was 4.13. This is 1991 for a team that lost 105 games. That team was so bad. Um, I mean, like, I don't want to have recency bias here, but like, Bybee's might be the best. You're right, though. I don't want to go to, like, <laughs> when every single statistic is from 1911, 1917. Okay, let's set the parameters a little bit different because obviously we're, we're working in different conditions here. So if you're looking at, let's say we just look at FIP in a rookie season, and I set it for 100 innings to be the cutoff. Uh, Sonny Siebert, Shane Bieber, Herb Score, Louis Tion, and these are all names that were higher than than where uh, than where Bybee is this year. But it's not just about the FIP. It's how many innings you threw. And setting it at 100 means that there are guys that pitched a little bit more, and that is valuable, as opposed to maybe if you just cleared 100, like, like Bieber had in his rookie season, I think he was at 114. But if you take the parameters of, I set it at 1955, because I wanted to include the Herb score season. Bybee and Fangraph's war, Three even is the third best of all time. Besting score, Nagy, and then there's Bybee. Eckersley had a great rookie season through 108, 86, and two-thirds innings, 260 ERA, 2.8 Fangrass war, and then Sabathia and Bieber. I, it's certainly not a stretch to say even semi-recent. This is definitely a top 10 season for a rookie pitcher in Guardians history. It's just, it's impossible to compare eras. You know, it's a little easier, I feel like, on the position player side with like WRC plus and whatnot because that factors in the era and you're compared to your peers and with pitchers it's just hard because like the innings total changes the context right like even Herb score in 55 through 227 innings I he was really good I, that's a better season than Tanner Bybee but that was also the norm back then I don't I don't know. Maybe he went home and his buddies were ragging on him for only throwing 227 <laughs> innings like a coward. I, I don't know. These analytics, um, they only let him throw only 227 <laughs> innings in their rookie seasons. I can't believe you didn't turn the lineup over a ninth time. Um, <laughs> Back in my day, it used to count for an out after it bounced one time. I, the impressive, the thing that I'm going to remember the most is that it truly felt like every single time he went out there, it was five and two thirds or six, six and a third, one or two runs. And that's it every time. And about as many strikeouts as innings. You know, I think that maybe the thing that surprised me was like he had some outings where he just didn't have his command and he'd walk four or five. Like I, he was a command guy long before he ever had velocity. So, you know, I'm sure like that, that's the thing with him is where does it go from here? Like I, I think he could be really, really good. I think the same about Gavin Williams. I think 
especially Gavin Williams is like not even scratched the surface yet of what he can be. Um, so yeah, it's impressive. Like that, that CC year was weird too, because he was so young. It was offense was just insane across the league. So like his 439 ERA was really good that year. Um, I remember he was starting in a playoff series against the Mariners. And I just assumed the fact that he was 17 and five means he got just oodles of run support. And I, I don't remember which game he pitched in the Mariners series in 01, but remember they won one of those games like 17 to two. Yeah. And I feel like, well, I'll look it up. You talk. So in terms of ERA, all-time Guardians slash Indians franchise history among rookie pitchers, it's Ackersley, Perry, Tidro, Tion, Herb Score, Bybee. Confirmed, by the way. 17-2 victory, CC on the mound, getting all the run support. Sixth. Sixth best among anyone that threw over 120 innings. God, that is so impressive. Because this season has been so dreadful in so many different ways, you do lose sight of like the so many f- few things where what do you remember about that year? We did that a couple of shows ago. What is going to be worthwhile is remembering the debuts of Bybee and Williams and Allen and what this rotation transformed itself to be over the next several years. That doesn't always ascend perfectly. You know, in 2015, they're on the cover of Sports Illustrated and everyone thought they did have the pitching in that year. They didn't. They didn't come all together. Maybe it takes another year beyond that. Bybee is is going to be fun because he has this mix of his stuff is not as good as Williams, but it's it's good. It it's not elite, but he has the, I think the ability to mesh, and a game plan and knowing what to execute and how to pitch, because as you've said so many times, he didn't always have that. So, because he has that, it's like the the nerd that went through school and everyone all of a sudden realizes, Hey, this person's attractive. <laughs> and they had, you had your, your late year, late life transformation, right? <laughs> you go to college and everyone says, Hey, what happened? This guy, this guy turned attractive. What happened to this guy? But I, I had the development of all of the personality. Unfortunately for some of us, we never had the personality develop or the looks and we just have to get through life. I don't know what we're doing. Looking like Lucas Giolito's first start with the guardians yet. Here comes Giolito. Giolito looks good. His most recent outing for the Guardians looks like the Giolito of old. It has everyone thinking, aha, uh-huh. they they gave him cinnamon with just a little bit of nutmeg, and all of a sudden, he's, he's back to being his fully unlocked, lethal top-of-the-rotation self. And then here's Giolito after the game, heaping all of the credit on Bo Naylor and saying, yeah, he really led me through this game, and it had me thinking, Maybe Giolito's getting a little comfortable here. Maybe, yeah, it went bad, but I'm seeing, wow, if I stick with this Guardians organization, maybe for one year, they could get me back to being the Giolito of old, my old self, and then I'll come out, and then I'll earn this huge contract after I stick around with Cleveland. Okay, maybe that's not the most likely outcome. Maybe it's not the best use of resources for the Guardians to keep a Giolito around. But I don't know, man. I think... It would be worth exploring, especially if you have any designs on trading Shane Bieber. There's money there that he's going to be vacating. Could you talk with Giolito? Because I sure would like to have another 
veteran-ish pitcher because it's not going to be the smooth ascension as we all assume to just mitigate the risk of having a young pitching staff. And if you're trading a Bieber, maybe allocate that money towards keeping Giolito for a season. Now, I think the most likely outcome here, and correct me if, if I'm off base here, might be like a two-year contract that Giolito signs, but he's got an option to leave after one year. So if he has a great one year, then he enters the market. However, if he's still struggling, then he sticks around for that two, two year. I'm thinking, what did Ron, uh, gotta get these all, all these names mixed up. Carlos Rodon, what did he get? And I'm wondering With if the he, Giants? Yeah. Is, could it be something similar to that? Yeah, it wasn't like two for 44 with, a, with an opt out. That was the first thing that came to mind, though. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know what his personal preferences are. I think before we even get to those, I think we got to figure out, like, what is the market? I don't know what the free agent starting pitcher class looks like. It's interesting. It's it's just, it's, you know, it stinks for him because, like, he was set up to land, I don't know, five for 100, something like that, five for 125, which... Seems like a ton, especially in Cleveland, but isn't really that big of a deal, I think, to a lot of markets anymore. Um, now I have no idea. I don't know if that's a one-year deal. I mean, is that a one-year deal? Is it, a, like you said, two-year deal? Is there still some team that believes in him enough to give him four or five? I have no idea. I'm with you. I, he's He's an interesting option if you trade Bieber. I don't see them ever forking over and because if it's a one-year deal it's what 20 million mm -hmm. i don't see them ever doing that i mean cindergard got 13 this year but so. if you, but okay so we're saying if you trade bieber you you, you were thinking about paying him that money that he was going to be owed yeah. in arbitration so it's not that much different it's going to be a little bit more but see then you can turn it around and bring something else in for what you traded bieber for so you take care of that it, and then hold on financially to the guy that, it shouldn't internal. have to be an either or. I mean, this is a team that had a payroll between 85 and 90 million this year and then cleared a little salary on August 1st. Well, I mean, a little salary in September. And then, like, it, there should be yes. the flexibility to add a Giolito without trading Bieber. I just, I. That, that's, that's not my point. I'm not talking about it in the, terms of money. It's the allocation though. that I don't, because we've never seen them do something like that. Sure. Sure. It's. It's not about the money, though. I'm not thinking, well, you can't, you can't afford both of them, so trade Bieber. No, I would rather no, have I know, Bieber. I, I would rather have Bieber of the two. I'm just thinking you could trade Bieber and hold on to this other guy. You don't maybe lose much in the rotation. You shift the money around, and maybe you've addressed right field by trading a Bieber away. That, that's, I'm just trying to think of what's the best use of all the resources you have at your disposal. And you were right on, by the way, about Carlos Rodon. It was two years... 44 million with the opt-out after one year with the Giants. And then he did. He was extended the qualifying offer. He turned that down and then signed the, his deal with New York. So could it be a similar thing with, with Giolito? I wouldn't, I would at least have the conversation because I think there's something. We're talking about how do you address other parts of this roster? This could be a way that you trade Bieber, but maybe you don't lose anything in terms of talent shift from G from Bieber to Giolito. Maybe it's not too drastic of a drop-off. If, if it's a drop-off at all at this point in their careers, I don't know. That's still... I think you've said it multiple times in the show. 
you go, what, what does their track record suggest? What do they tell us that they do all the time? It's not doing something like this. But, okay, another guy they brought in that could help fix the bullpen. What about Ronaldo Lopez? That feels like a guy I would want to keep. Yeah, we talked about more previously because he felt like maybe he fit in financially more in line of, of what they would be willing to offer somebody in the bullpen. But if they're really concerned about who's occupying those seventh and eighth innings for them, and they don't really love Karinchek based on what they've told us here. I, I really like Ronaldo Lopez. That's a guy I might want to keep around. I think they like him too. The only thing with him is, again, they've never paid for relievers. And couldn't you see the Rockies or some team like that being like, hey, come be our closer. Mm. Here's a three-year, $30 million deal. And then it's over with. Yeah, that's that's why I initially didn't, I thought more of about, about more because I didn't think he was going to get a multi-year deal. But I, I, even if it's like a two-year deal, I would be thinking about Lopez, because I really think this dude could help in the seventh and eighth inning for you. And I'm with you. And I think we said this at the time of the waiver claims, if it helps you one iota, just getting these guys here, spending a month with you, maybe unlocking something that hadn't been unlocked, if that helps you... at the one hundredth of one percent in re- retaining them that's beneficial but it's i don't know i would say odds are against it but i mean we don't even know who the coaching staff is going to be <laughs> you want reynaldo lopez to commit to cleveland for the next couple of years well he doesn't even know who's the pitching coach who's the bullpen coach yeah it's, it seems like you, you, who's you the know, manager who's going to be running the show and antonetti doesn't appear to be entertaining those those Boston offers, maybe beyond just thinking about it for a split second. But you're right, there's going to be some turnover here. That's fair. It's absolutely fine. But through it all, you and me will be here. And we hope that you'll consider joining us our exclusive Guardians community of fans in Discord, which is going to be so much fun throughout the offseason. There are not a lot of places to really converse about the Guardians in the offseason. Our Discord is going to be one of those places. And in addition to that, once we hit the off-season, we go to our free episodes only every other week. So we'll be continue doing them. It'll just be every other week for the most part. We'll continue to do weekly shows over at Patreon for just a buck a show. So you get access to the Discord. You get be part of our community. You, you, get, a, you, just, you get to converse with us whenever you want. You just send us a message. We're right there. Where else do you get that? Plus a free beer. Limited supply right now. We got what? 11 games left yeah find me yeah in kansas city in cleveland in detroit while you can (laughs) patreon.com slash selby is godcast patreon.com slash selby is godcast it's gonna be a fun off season we're already thinking about plans for shows so because we're not going to get postseason games to to talk about this year i think we were thinking about doing two recap games maybe one during the the postseason and if you're unfamiliar with those, we go back and watch a game from the past. We watch the entire thing. We take notes. We play highlights. And we just talk about the game, the commercials, the, the announcers, the emotion, everything. It's one of the, my favorite things that we do. And I think we'll do two of those this offseason. So that'll be a fun thing for hopefully everyone enjoys. If there's something you're dying, if there's one particular game you're dying to hear us recap, let us know. We're always willing to take suggestions. Well, yeah, where we're talking about, I found 
Game 3 of the 95 World Series, which is the first World Series game at, at Jacobs Field. First World Series win for this team at, at uh, Jacobs Field at the time and in so, so long. But you wrote the book about 95. We just assume everyone loves 95. Sometimes I forget that so much of our audience wasn't even alive for the 95 <laughs> season. Do, do fans even care that we talk about that 95 team and lineup in those games anymore? Let us know. Maybe maybe That's a good question. Maybe do one. Older... You don't want to do that Jose Mesa start in 1993? <laughs> we'll consider it. <laughs> All right, maybe do one older game and then one semi-newer game. Uh, is the off season. We usually do that around the holidays too, so that'll be fun. We're, we've got all that planned, so join us patreon.com slash Godcast. Then join the Discord. It's a lot of fun. And also, if you want to go get that free beer before the end of the year, SeatGeek, use code Selby, save yourself 20 bucks on your ticket order. Whew, got it all out. I plan to do that like five minutes in, but here we are an hour and six minutes in. That was impressive. That was impressive. And for the next part of the next segment of the podcast, we will describe in detail Nick Chubb's knee injury and how it happened. I am out. I'm out on that. <laughs>